0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin.
1: And I'm Kimberly Robinson.
0: The court just wrapped up the January sitting, just two days of argument this week, but seems like a lot happened this week, Kimberly. We're going to talk to the director of Harvard's Religious Freedom Clinic about their involvement in the first step back sentencing case that was just argued. We'll also recap some recent court action on the Texas abortion law, Trump and the January 6th Commission, and the Maskgate controversy. Ooh,
1: that's a lot. Kimberly,
0: let's take that in a bit of a reverse order and talk about this Maskgate, which is pretty silly, but also maybe not in some respects. What's the latest?
1: All right. So let's back up, right? So the court returned in person in October uh, for arguments. And for three months, the only justice to wear a mask was Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who we've mentioned many times on this pod podcast, has type 1 diabetes. Um, so that puts her at a higher risk should she contract coronavirus. So fast forward to the beginning of the month in January when – Lo and behold, all the justices appear out of the robing room and seven of eight of them have on masks. And of course, Justice Sonia Sotomayor is not there because she's hearing these cases remotely. So the one person who is not wearing a mask is Justice Gorsuch. And then NPR this week um, put out a story in which they described the quote prickly uh, Justice Gorsuch. And it said that the chief justice had in some way requested that the (laughs) that the justices mask up and that Justice Gorsuch had refused.
0: And so that's on Tuesday. The timeline is important here. It's a we need to do the Watergate. What did you know? And
1: when did you know it?
0: When did you know it? Because
1: on Tuesday, that's what we knew uh, or what we thought we knew. On Wednesday, the court then does this really unique thing, which I think is the most noteworthy thing about this whole affair, um, is that the justices actually responded. So first, we got a statement from Justices Sotomayor and Gorsuch, a joint statement, which said that Sotomayor had not asked Justice Gorsuch to mask up and key piece of information they are warm friends they're warm which um actually jordan this reminds me uh you never got back to me are we colleagues friends or warm friends
0: i mean the thing is if you are warm friends you don't need to put out a statement saying that i think our our warmth speaks like you for need itself to
1: state it. here friends colleagues warm friends still haven't answered <sighs> yeah i feel like this is getting awkward Okay, where were we? Uh, Justice Sotomayor and Gorsuch, they, they are warm friends. I kind of envy them a little bit. And so the Twitter world went alight with the fact that, well, that wasn't actually what NPR had reported. Uh, it never reported that Sotomayor had asked Gorsuch to mask up. It was always that Roberts had. Um, and so it seems like a very strategic non answer from a couple of lawyers. Mm -hmm.
0: Non-denial denial. denial.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, But then the Chief Justice put out a statement too, which I mean... So crazy. We got two statements from the justices. I think the last statement that we got from the justices was that um, reaction from Chief Justice Roberts, Um, but it was early in the Trump administration where uh, President Trump had said something about uh, an adverse court ruling from an Obama judge. And um, Chief Justice Roberts said, you know, there are no Trump judges, there are no Obama judges, there are just judges doing their
0: their best right the last statement is like something that would is going to appear in Roberts obituary and this is like talking about <laughs> gossip
1: <laughs> so um yeah that seemed to put an end to the story for me although um NPR stands by its reporting right so they say there's some wiggle room in this idea that Chief Justice Roberts quote in some way uh asked them maybe he like in some yeah, form in some form that's right
0: well so look, if you're going to you're you're saying this settles the story for you. Now
1: um now
0: I don't think this has to be a story, but if it is a story, let's go there because this is what Robert says, quote, "I did not request Justice Gorsuch or any other justice to wear a mask on the bench." end quote. I think the way that is phrased is a little bit strange in terms of saying request instead of ask. Forget that though for a second. The substantive part of, for me that that still leaves lingering is the reporting also talked about how Sotomayor was participating in the conference remotely, their private conference, when they talk about cases. And Robert's statement specifically does not address that. And so, again, it still leaves some wiggle room. The problem with the justice weighing in kind of piecemeal and these like very specific lawyer type statements is that they leave open questions. And again, maybe that can't be helped to some extent, but if you're going to treat this as a story, and we don't have to, it still doesn't settle it, I don't think.
1: You know what's great about this, Jordan, is that this week the justices debated a case about how clear Congress has to be when it wants to divest jurisdiction. And it seemed like at one point Chief Justice Roberts was complaining that they were like demanding so much of Congress and like, how could they be more clear? Maybe they could have been clearer, but like they're clear enough here, right? And some of the other justices were pushing back, like, no, 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 we need to be super clear. And then the court has to issue two statements, both of which are unclear. I mean, the universe.
0: Here's something that just came to me in terms of what could have happened. Hot takes. This thought, uh, this came to me as you were mentioning how all the other justices besides Gorsuch were wearing masks and how that might have came about. Here's a theory. Chief Justice Roberts, he's not actually in charge of everyone, but he has this administrative type of function at the court, right? What if he might have said early this month, something like the following, in light of the recent surge, we're going to make sure that we have available masks for any of the justices who want to wear them to the argument, something like that. Now, that's something that could qualify as not a request to Justice Gorsuch or any of the other ones, but could in some form resemble what NPR's public editor in, in critiquing the story agreed could qualify as a suggestion as opposed to an asking. What about something okay. like that?
1: Okay, totally plausible, but I still don't understand then why the justices issued those two statements. If the daylight between what happened and what was reported is that small where it's like I didn't like verbally request but I did do this like wink wink Um, why refute it why issue those statements at all I mean that's seems to be something that they reserve for things that are really really important and if this is the daylight between what happened in the reporting it doesn't seem all that important to refute
0: it's true once you get started though you know Once you pop, the fun doesn't stop, as uh, Oliver (laughs) Wendell Holmes famously said.
1: Ultimately, Jordan, right, this whole controversy comes down to, right, you're Justice Gorsuch. You're warm friends with someone who has type 1 diabetes. You've written a book about collegiality, and you've lamented how no one is kind anymore and the problem that has for democracy. All of your colleagues are wearing a mask and you still refuse. What's up with that?
0: That's his question to them. Why are you still engaging in this COVID mask theater when we're all vaxxed, we're all boosted, we're all going to be okay, yet you're still... And they test
1: on the morning uh, of. I think for me, the point is this idea of collegiality. So if you don't think that masks help... But your colleague seems to think that. And they are, I mean, I don't think even Justice Gorsuch would deny this fact, that she is at a heightened risk should should she contract it. Why not just wear it? I think that's the thing, is that he seems to care about what the not mask wearing means. And that's why this is the story, right? That's all this other stuff that we're talking about, the statements and blah, blah, blah. That's why this is a big deal, is because... He's not wearing the mask.
0: I'm getting a I'm getting a sign from our producer David that in some form appears to be telling us to be talking about something else.
1: All right, Jordan. Um a lot happened at the court this week, so I think we can leave Maskate. I think we have I think we covered Maskate pretty pretty thoroughly.
0: Too thoroughly, some might say, in some form. So let's talk about abortion and Trump. So, Kimberly, we had the latest action from the court in effectively Keeping Roe versus Wade off the books in Texas while we're still awaiting a decision in the Mississippi Dobbs case, what's the latest on SB8 at the court?
1: So, of course, the justices had provided a narrow path for uh, Texas abortion providers to move forward with their challenge in federal court to the six-week abortion ban. That went back to the Fifth Circuit. I think with the Idea that the Fifth Circuit would then send it back quickly to the district court to um, what we can tell from what the district court had done before uh, to stop the law um, from being in effect and then litigate the case out. Uh, That didn't happen, though. Uh, when the state got back to the Fifth Circuit, they asked it to certify a question to the Texas state courts. And in what I've never heard of before, the Fifth Circuit actually heard oral argument on whether or not to certify the question. Can you think of another time where an appellate court has heard oral argument on the question of whether to certify a case to a state court? I mean, it happens so infrequently, the certification at all, but I think that's typically something that the judges just kind of do based on briefing and kind of of their own. That's like a vibes thing, right?
0: Yeah, I haven't heard of that. I feel like I wouldn't know about that just given the things that we're focused on if that did happen. But it wouldn't surprise me if everything about this case is unprecedented in some form.
1: Okay, so right. So they hear argument and then over the weekend they decide, yeah you know what, we're going to go ahead and certify this question to the state courts, ensuring that the litigation will drag on and on and on and on and on with the understanding that the law is in effect while the litigation goes on. And so all of the chilling effects um, for abortions in Texas are still taking place. And this is widely seen, and I don't even think the state of Texas even denies this, as a delay tactic, right? The law is in effect. They want to keep it going. And so the abortion providers had asked the Supreme Court to be like, yo, move it along. Let's go. Um, and they didn't. Uh, they came out with an order which said basically just no. Your, your request is denied. That's all it said. There was no opinion from the court. Um, but there were three dissenters, right? So the liberals on the court, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, Here's something we can talk about the Sotomayor dissent, because I think uh, at this point she's basically like yelling um, in the only way that the justices can yell at their warm friend, colleagues. But what why didn't Chief Justice Roberts join this dissent? He's been right in dissent with the liberals on this case at like every step generally right so at the initial step to stop the law right he was about to halt it while the litigation was pending and then kind of as we went on he was kind of one for um stop at least pausing the law while the litigation played out but he's not here what do we think it's up with that
0: yeah i was trying to think about that i can't think of a Logical explanation. Because
1: that's actually something we could use a statement on. <laughs> that Yeah, would be a good maybe he's been too statement. distracted
0: dealing with his own PR statements or whatever it is. But look, you could see him not joining Sotomayor's dissent, which was more forceful, was signed by her just saying, I dissent, not respectfully dissent. But you had Justice Breyer writing his own respectful dissent, which maybe Roberts could have joined. And if he didn't like either of those, he was free to write his own as he's done before. So I can't see based on his prior joining with the Democratic appointees of why he didn't hear, uh, other than to say it wouldn't have made a difference to the outcome.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe. And the only thing I can think of is that, you know, this was a request for mandamus relief, which the court does really infrequently. It is very high bar for when the court kind of steps in in this way. Um, And so maybe that was the difference. But I just, I mean, this whole case has been kind of extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And I, And I would say in general that's the type of thing where the different procedural aspect would lend itself to saying maybe we don't know except for the fact that this whole entire case is about using (laughs) these procedural mechanisms to get around the constitutional obligation. And so that was the tenor of Robert's previous joining with them, and so it's the same thing that's still happening.
1: Okay, let's talk about Justice Sotomayor.
0: You know, we could read her whole thing. She talks about how the case is, quote, a disaster for the rule of law. A disaster
1: for the rule of law and a grave disservice to women in Texas. Uh, yeah, that was, it was pretty forceful language. Um, I know that was the sentence that got the most play kind of on social media, but I thought it was, I thought well, one thing that she said was really interesting. She, she was talking about how Texas didn't even have to like alter its its law in like this minimal way that people were saying, you know, the court's very narrow ruling had just made it so that all they had to do was just kind of like change a few words and the law would still be the same. She says Texas wagered that this court did not mean what little it said in the case or at least that this court would not stand behind those words meager as they were and that bet has paid off.
0: Right. She's basically saying, look, We're getting played, the majority of the court knows we're getting played, but doesn't care because they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade anyway, and that's what's happening.
1: So I guess that was the question. Does this signal that that's behind the reason why Chief Justice Roberts didn't join was like, this is all kind of a moot point anyway? Come June, there's going to be no Roe versus Wade across the entire nation. So why not just have like Texas get a get a little head start?
0: Yeah, I mean, right. The question is, what is this signal for what's going to happen in Dobbs? I mean, maybe it's just the latest sign that the court is going the way that we thought it was going on abortion. I don't know that it's anything new, but just the latest confirmation that what we thought was going to happen after Dobbs is, in fact, what's going to happen.
1: And there you have it. Um, What else happened? I feel like other stuff happened.
0: Kimberly, do you remember Donald Trump? Vaguely. Yeah. So he popped up again at the court this week. There's the January 6th commission in there investigating last year's insurrection. And as part of that, they're trying to get their hands on some White House papers during the Trump presidency. Trump was trying to Keep those papers away based on executive privilege, and he was trying to get the court to help him out with the majority, half of which are his appointees. But unlike in some of the policies of the administration, when it comes to this personal little favor, so to speak, uh, the court declined eight to one. Justice Thomas was the only dissenter in rejecting Trump's attempt at using executive privilege to keep those papers away from the commission. Kavanaugh also wrote a separate statement basically talking about how he thinks executive privilege is very important and he's concerned about this, but that wasn't a dissent.
1: Right, so it was an 8-to-1 opinion and it was a really sweeping loss for the former president. Um, And so basically what's going on is that President Biden decided that there were some um, categories of documents that he would waive Uh, executive privilege on basically the thinking being, you know, Congress is looking into this um, with a legislative purpose of preventing insurrection. And it's in the interest of the public basically for you know us to know what was going on in the White House uh, at this time. And so President Biden waived executive privilege over those Trump documents. Uh, former President Trump tried to come in and say, no, 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 you can't waive executive privilege over my stuff. You know, this is I I'm the one who gets to decide what happens with the documents and the Supreme Court rejected that without actually rejecting that. So they said, look, the D.C. Circuit had said that under any theory of privilege, regardless of whether or not you are the current president, the former president executive privilege can be overcome in this instance, Um, you know, that being the January 6th committee and Congress, the select committee looking into it. I think what's important about that ruling is what it says for all these other challenges that are coming, Um, you know, so we've seen a lot of people within the Trump administration um, claiming privilege over conversations or documents. And I think this squarely says that what, Congress is investigating is important enough that none of those
0: privileged claims
1: are going to work out. Is that what you took out of it?
0: Yeah. And I mean, it is kind of an interesting question, right? I mean, can Trump, when he's hypothetically reelected on his first day back in the White House, just start tweeting out all of Biden's secret stuff? I mean, is that what we're talking about here? Or is it not that broad of a principle that's really at stake?
1: Yeah. So that's interesting to note. Um... Should we talk about Concepcion?
0: Sure. I'll set this up briefly before we bring on our guests. This is the court's latest grappling with fallout from the war on drugs, specifically the Reagan era 100 to 1 crack to powder disparity. And so in light of that, Congress has been taking some ameliorative steps, most recently in the First Step Act. And so as I mentioned, there was the 100 to 1 ratio, which in 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act... Congress reduced it to another kind of random unscientific ratio of 18 to 1. And then in the First Step Act of 2018, Congress then made those changes retroactive. But the question is, when judges are contemplating doing these resentencings under the latest act, the First Step Act, what do judges take into account? Concepcion says that judges have to take into account the latest intervening facts in law, which could include changes in the sentencing guidelines not having to do with crack or evidence of the defendant's latest rehabilitation, which hadn't happened yet at the time of the initial sentencing. And his judge declined to do that. And so he appealed. And on appeal, it's interesting, the Justice Department opposes the idea that judges have to take into account this latest information, but they actually agree with Concepcion's fallback position, which is that judges may take that information into account. And so it was interesting at the argument this week, the way that played out to the extent that some of the justices were actually pushing against the government for not taking a forceful enough position. Some of them, like Justice Gorsuch. I have a very hard time getting my head around that there's some universe in which you
2: may impose a lower sentence, but it's unconstrained by 3553 or anything the sentencing commission has said. Um, th- th- that's a world, I-, I guess, after Rita and Gall, uh, I-, I just don't recognize. So can you help me first with why the government abandoned the position of the Ninth Circuit, which I could understand, and two, help me understand that which, that which I'm struggling to understand?
1: Uh, well, thanks for that background, Jordan. Let's bring on our guest.
0: Josh McDaniel is visiting assistant clinical professor of law at Harvard Law School. He's directing Harvard Law School's Religious Freedom Clinic. The clinic's been busy filing briefs at the court this term. One of them came in a case argued just this week, Concepcion against the United States. Josh, thanks for joining us to talk about the case and the clinic.
3: Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: So we'll want to hear about how you got involved in the Concepcion case itself, but First, can you explain to our listeners a bit how you got involved in the clinic and what it does?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the clinic is one of the few clinics in the country that's devoted to religious freedom and, and representing especially people of, of faith and, and people of minority faiths at any stage of litigation. So, so we've, we've handled Supreme Court briefs, but we also handle litigation in trial courts and appellate courts. At, at any stage for, for plaintiffs. And, and the clinic started last year. So, so it's relatively new at Harvard Law School. And it's committed to robust freedom for religion for all. And, and that means not only people of all faiths, but all people, including the marginalized immigrants, and as in this Concepcion case, prisoners or criminal defendants.
0: And so can you talk a bit about how you got involved in this Concepcion
3: case? Yeah. So we we got in touch with the petitioner's counsel at Williams and Connolly, and they were, they were looking for someone to bring out the religious component of this case. Because in, in this case, the petitioner, one of the key pieces of evidence that he submitted to the court when he was asking for a reduced sentence was a letter from his prison chaplain that talked about his spiritual religious conversion in prison, the change that it had made in his life. And his role in the in the religious community there at the prison, and we we wanted to highlight that not only that that evidence is relevant, it's something that's permissible for a court to consider, in in any type of sentencing, but also in particular these types of motions for for a reduced sentence under the the First Step Act and the Fair Sentencing Act.
0: Right. I guess you look at this case. It's a criminal sentencing case. Kimberly and I talked about it. A little bit before on the episode, and you look at it and think, "Well, what does religion have to do with this?" Right? So, I mean, how big a deal really is the religious component to this criminal sentencing issue, which, on its face, one wouldn't necessarily think of religion being involved.
3: Yeah, well, it's a it's an issue that's lurking in the background of this case because the the key the the key issue that's directly in front of the court is when a when a di- when a district court judge who's sentencing a who who's deciding one of these motions for a reduced sentence under the first step act and the fair sentencing act when they do that are they required or can they consider new laws or new facts when when they're going through that process of deciding whether to reduce the sentence of of one of these defendants who's been subject to the disproportionate sentences for crack cocaine offenses and in, in any case, the facts and the laws that, that might be different can, can vary from case to case. But in this particular case, one of the key factual changes that had happened was the religious conversion of Mr. Concepcion in prison. And as I said before, that, that was one of the key pieces of evidence that he submitted was a letter from his chaplain. And in the research that we did in connection with our brief that our students did is we, we looked at a lot of these First Step Act resentencings. And came across a number of, of cases where district courts had considered similar chaplain letters. And so so it is something that you see coming up from case to case. So
0: you mentioned this lurking in the background. And I think that's fair to say based on the argument. It was mentioned, I think, at least briefly. The religion issue didn't get right. a ton of play. But, Josh, I'm wondering if you did listen to the argument in the first instance, if you have a takeaway as to what you think the court might do, and if there's anything else that you wanted to say, just how this religion issue came up or didn't come up at the argument.
3: Yeah, it it, it did come up briefly with the petitioner's counsel, I think mentioning that it could be considered by courts ruling on these Fair Sentencing Act motions.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, you asked about good time credits. We agree those are important, and the the First Step Act made changes to the way that those are calculated. But they don't take into account some important developments. For example, uh, Mr. Concepcion's religious conversion in prison. Um, A number of prisoners bring that sort of evidence to their First Step Act
3: proceedings, and it's not always accounted for in the good time credits. And like I said, it's it's an important background point, uh, given that it was an important piece of evidence Mr. Concepcion submitted in support of his motion. In, in terms of how the case could come out, I think it's always risky to predict outcomes and this case, based on my listen to the of the oral argument, I think in particular this case could be a close one. Some justices, including the chief justice, seemed concerned about what would be an equitable solution and several justices expressed the view that the statute doesn't exactly speak directly to this question of can new facts and new laws be considered in the course of ruling on this type of emotion and that means that the, the justices are basically forced to read between the lines or choose between competing back, background pr- principles when deciding this question of statutory interpretation.
0: Yeah, and I mentioned this to Kimberly earlier in the episode. One thing I thought was weird was that some of the justices seemed focused on a position that neither side was arguing. I don't know if that's something that you had picked up on at all as well.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. the The government in this case decided to a, a bit, to not take the 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 position that these types of new facts and new laws cannot be considered and that really the only thing that the district court judge when they're sentencing has can and and must look at is is the 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 reduced sentencing ranges that that are now in place under the the first step act even the government said that it's appropriate for the district court to consider in some circumstances if the district court chooses to but the, the government's position was that the district court judge has discretion to consider new facts and new law but it doesn't have to it's it's basically up to the district court's uh, interpretation and in fact the one one of the odd things in this case was the the petitioner's counsel basically said they would be happy with with the government's position in this case and so so there was mm-hmm. this middle ground that both sides were were basically saying they would both be happy with and neither side was taking the position that the Ninth Circuit took in its, in its ruling in, in, in this circuit split, where, where it said that when a district court is, is ruling on one of these motions, it really has to act as though it's back in time at the original time of sentencing and can't consider anything that came after that time.
2: What should I do if I think that you are, the government is effectively trying to Drive down the the middle uh, on the the dividing line of a two-lane highway, uh, and really the only choice is to go in one direction or the other direction. So you had to choose between either uh, either uh, petitioner's position or the position that you just have to have the or you have to have a resentencing while ruling uh, while taking uh, correcting only the specific error. Um, mentioned in the in this provision which would you choose
1: so can we take um, a little bit more of a 30,000 foot view of the Roberts court and it's uh, we've talked about it on this podcast before that religion is one of the Roberts court favorite issues to decide I wonder how that affects um, how you approach writing an amicus brief at the court
3: yeah, it, I and I, first of all, I would certainly agree that it is a, a very key, very big issue in the court, especially nowadays. And I, I think it's it's also one of the reasons why we have the clinic in the first place. Is mm-hmm. if you look around at law schools around the country, uh, the, the the religion clauses don't get in particular a lot of attention in in mm-hmm. the the courses and the classes that law students take. But then when you look at the Supreme Court, you look at the docket at the Supreme Court. It's, it's really a major issue. And, and so a lot of students come to the clinic because they're really hungry to be able to learn the case law, learn the doctrines, debate the issues. And and the clinic provides an opportunity for the students to do that. In terms of how we approach these cases when, when we come to the court, one of our tenets or our philosophies is that we're, we're looking to build bridges on, on religious liberty. And we're looking to help us to see the common ground on religious liberty and turn down the temperature and the rhetoric and the discussion around religious liberty, because I think it's, a, it's increasingly in today's politicized world becoming a very divisive topic. And so we, we look for opportunities to highlight that common ground. And I, I think this Concepcion case is a, is a good example where you have uh, a, a, an act in criminal justice reform where, where there was a lot of bipartisan support and, and we're able to highlight a religious component of that case in a way that uh, things aren't gonna really break down along partisan lines in in that type of a case. And and we try and carry that forward in our other cases that we select for our docket, is is we're looking for uh, typically not cases that are pitting individual rights against individual rights, but, but instead we're looking at cases like cases representing a prisoner who's seeking an accommodation in prison, or a, a case where an employee is is seeking some type of an accommodation within the workplace. And when we're arguing before the Supreme Court, we it, it might be a case where we're highlighting the religious dynamics or components of a case where on its surface, religion might not appear on the surface. Uh, or, or even if religion does appear, we're, we, we, we try to highlight some of the, the broader reasons why why this is important. We we try to reach all of the justices with the arguments that we make.
0: And picking up on something you just mentioned, Josh, I don't know if this is maybe a bit of a challenging question, but I thought it was an interesting point when you mentioned that this type of clinic isn't something, or this type of course religion isn't something that you're seeing in the law schools, despite it being such a huge part of the Supreme Court's docket. I'm wondering, though know, if that's just because it's basically taken care of in a sense, whereas your average prisoner isn't going to be represented, but the religion issue is essentially the waterfront is covered by various groups and by a majority of the court itself. And so I imagine that you've encountered this sort of question or type of criticism before, but I guess the question in some ways is, why does this issue, which has a majority of the court in its pocket, essentially need this additional help.
3: Well, I, so I, I guess when, when I was thinking about this issue, I'm thinking of it in terms of my own experience. And, and w- when I went to law school, that really the, the only way to take freedom of religion was to take a first amendment class. And and so you cool. take the first amendment class. And, and I think we spent uh, out, out of our 14 weeks or so of the semester, we spent maybe a little bit more than a week on the religion clauses. And then we spent the rest, the, the 12 and a half weeks or so on, on the free speech component of it. And, 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 and although you might say that in the Roberts court, you know, freedom of religion is doing well. It's, it's something that is, is finding support with, with a lot of the justices and, and those types of dynamics have changed over time. I, I think even if you go back in time, if, if you look back 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the, it was the it was still the same issue where where freedom of religion really wasn't something that was was covered very extensively in law school, and I and I do actually think that that's starting to change, and I think slowly over time schools are starting to open up their offerings and and are starting to cover it more robustly.
1: It's interesting though that the one area where religion might not be doing so well in the Supreme Court is in the criminal context, right? So we have that Ramirez versus Collier case, which was, um. Uh, on many fronts, I think, antithetical to the way that the Roberts court tends to look at religion um, and some of the questions that the justice has asked. So
3: yeah, and perhaps- we, we submitted a brief in that case as well. And uh, that that case also presents really, really challenging issues, I think, for the the conservative justices on, on the court. Um, but I, again, I, I hope that there can be some common ground on those issues. It, so in the in in the criminal context, what I, I think a couple of data points that are interesting. So so in, in that space, we we operate under a statute called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. And it was this this piece of landmark legislation that was passed by Congress in the year two thousand that I, I believe it was unanimous support across the board and it was it was it was signed into law and um we, we, we do a lot of our cases under that statute and really this Ramirez case is only the second ever Supreme Court case to decide a case on the merits under that act. The first one was is a case called Holt the, versus Fox.
1: Is that the one with the with the pistol mini pistols in the beards? That was, yeah,
3: exactly. So that, <laughs> that was, that was the first favorites. case, and that was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court. So all all nine justices ruled in favor of the prisoner in that case. I I think certainly the Ramirez case is, based on the oral argument, it sounds like it's going to be a closer case. I don't don't think it's going to be unanimous. And so it'll be really interesting to see the the breakdown of the court, especially given that it's really the the second case to be decided under that act and probably the first case to actually have some type of dissent in that case and competing viewpoints expressed by the court.
0: And so, Josh, are there any other cases that you wanted to highlight that the clinic either is involved in at the court or will be involved in or anything else that you're looking forward to as we're looking towards the rest of the term?
3: Well, sure. So we're, we're still uh, shaping up our, our, our docket of cases for, for the next semester. And there's a number of cases that are in front of the court that we're looking at. Uh, another amicus brief that we filed in the court last semester was, was I, I would say it's similar to the Concepcion case, where the religion issues were not on the surface. It was a Fourth Amendment uh, ser- search case where basically the, the government posted a, a security camera on a utility pole outside of a home and surveilled a home for 18 months. And that, that case is pending before the court on a petition for writ of certiorari. The court hasn't ruled on that petition yet. And we filed a, a brief in that case highlighting the religious component in that case being that there, there's a lot of history of government surveillance of churches and synagogues and mosques. and we, we were highlighting for the court how upholding the, the lower court's ruling in that case and allowing that type of long, long-standing surveillance of, of a building or a home or a church or a mosque or a surveillance could lead to, to governmental abuse and could could lead to renew, re- the renewal of some of those longstanding, abusive practices against minority faiths.
0: Well, that would definitely be interesting if the court takes that one up. I guess the only problem is that means it's a Fourth Amendment case, which the court has apparently uh, stopped taking. So that seems to be maybe the, the biggest obstacle there, but maybe that'll be... The next one
1: and although it's not a Fourth Amendment case right there's that Fazaga case where the justices are considering kind of this idea of uh, mass surveillance and um, how it implicates religion so
3: Exactly yeah, we, we highlighted that case. We also highlighted another uh, recent case, Tanzan where, where the, the FBI put some some uh, Muslim men on, on the no-fly list and so it really does come up in a lot of these cases. In terms of the, the current cases that the court is looking at, uh, I think one big takeaway is that there's a lot of law and religion. Just just in this month, you have religious flag flying in the shirtlove case. Uh, you have religious tax exemptions in a petition for certiorari that was recently denied with Justice Gorsuch dissenting from that decision. You have prayers by football coaches. That's a case that uh, the, the court recently granted cert on. And then as our brief highlighted in this case, religion can even be at play when it isn't the central issue in the case.
0: Right. That's interesting. And I I don't mean to bind your future course of conduct to anything you're saying here, but is your, it sounds like, or is your intention that your clinic is going to be involved mainly in the Concepcion or Ramirez type of case and not getting into these kind of bigger, what might be called culture war type of religion issues that maybe people were concerned about in the Beginning or do you just not know that yet?
3: Uh, we're we're taking it one step at a time, but we, we are very intentional about not taking the the types of culture war issues that that create a lot of hostility or division between people. We're we're looking to 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 build those bridges, as I said, and we we also an, another consideration for us is that we're we're not just a clinic for conservative students at the school. We have students that come with all types of political, ideological views, views on religion. And we, we want them to be able to come to the clinic and, and be able to rally around the causes, rally around the clients that we take in the clinic. And I, I think it's been an extremely positive experience for the students who have come through the clinic, in, including cl- students who might have come in not, uh, not not quite appreciating why religious liberty might be a value for everyone. And then coming out of the clinic and after serving the clients that we have in the clinic, they they can kind of see it in the eyes of the clients and and see it through the the work that they do on their clients' behalf, why it's important for them and and why it is such a fundamental value.
0: You converted them. Exactly. (laughs) All right, well let's end on that happy note. Thanks again, Josh, for coming on and talking to us.
3: Yeah, it was great. Thank you.
0: So Kimberly, for the two or three listeners who've managed to stick with us throughout (laughs) to the end of this (laughs) absurd episode. You want to explain a little bit what you're talking about with these pistols and beards?
1: Right. So, um, I'm Referring to a case versus uh, Holt versus Hobbs, in which the justices considered whether or not prisoners could grow out a beard beyond a certain length. And during oral arguments in this case, Justice Alito um, posed kind of a silly hypothetical, asking, you know, what was the prison so worried about?
2: As far as searching a beard is concerned, why can't the prison just give the uh, inmate a comb? You could develop whatever kind of comb you want and say, comb your beard. And if there's anything in there, if there's a SIM card in there or a, a revolver or anything else you think can be hidden in a half-inch beard, a tiny revolver, it'll fall out.
1: Yeah. One of the many, many memorable oral argument comments from Justice Illegal. All
0: right, well, mercifully, listeners, after that very long episode, we'll be leaving you alone for a couple weeks, but we'll be back to talk about what's coming up in the February city.
1: Maybe. We might have to do a couple emergency episodes on masks and things like that. Until our next emergency episode on MassGate 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are, and how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear wherever fine podcasts are found.